Hello and welcome to episode 276 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans' weekly podcast of many topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and if you listened to us last week, you have some idea of what we're talking about this week. This is our second episode on Radiant Historia, the 2010-2011 DS Darling, made by Atlas, composed by Yoko Shimomura, and remade somewhat recently, I think in 2018, for the 3DS. But the four of us uh, all played the old-school DS version. We have some thoughts on the second half and endgame of Radiant Historia, but who am I speaking of specifically? It's Pete Levitt. Hello, ho. Caleb Curry. Hello. And Alana Hayes. Hey, y'all. So, gentlemen and lady, uh, we have been busy at uh, Radiant Historia the past several days or weeks, or at least I have. I finished the game literally minutes before sw- switching on my microphone. I uh, had to undergo some individual crunch to get this one crossed off. Uh, and if you check my Twitter feed, you'll find the exact moment that I beat the game because I was really in a hurry to uh, to, to get this recording in. But uh, starting with you, Caleb and Alana, um, since it's your first time playing, I want uh, give me your abridged overall impressions on Radiant Historia now that you've beaten it recently. Uh, uh, you go first, Alana. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah. Well, um, I think it pretty much lives up to my um, expectations. Like, it is a bit of a hidden gem. And I think it does everything really, really well. Like, I was very, I was having, I had a lot of fun playing it. And I think I'm not, I'm not much of a handheld person. Like, I much prefer playing an RPG on a TV or a big console. But Radiant Historia has got, like, the hook in the combat and, like, a really simple, but a simple story that's, like, weaved together really complexly, but in a way that's really understandable, that keeps me hooked. And it feels like it's in the right place on the DS, and that, like, addictive battle system that we talked a little bit about last episode really, really kept me going. And, like, I came away from it really satisfied, and I don't, like, there's so many games that I love that I have niggles with the plot, or, like, the ending's not great or anything like that, but, like, Radiant Historia, although it, like, ends vaguely... I'm satisfied to leave it where it is, which, you know, is interesting when you think that it got a enhanced port slash remake seven years later that added an additional timeline and a final, final chapter that resolved the loose threads that maybe didn't need resolving. But yeah, like my experience with this version is like, it's pretty positive across the board. Like it's clean, it's simple, it's it, it does everything that it does well. And there's not really like a blotch on it anywhere i would say so yeah all right and i i, I mostly share your th- uh share your thoughts like i thought this game uh was you, you know came with a uh with a somewhat lofty reputation especially among niche outlets like rpg fan but i, I mean i i played it i remembered a lot of it uh i was reminded of some things that i had forgotten when i played this uh nine years ago or so but i think it lived up to expectations it's just a really really solid RPG of its era. Uh, Caleb, this is also your first time playing the game. Uh, what were your overall thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I alluded to this on the last podcast, but, you know, I I thought it was sort of like a slightly flawed masterpiece then, and I, I think that even more now, like, um, you know, as I played through the first half, I, like, developed all these expectations, and I started to get nervous that it would, you know, flub it at the end or something, kind of like Alana was alluding to, but Honestly, this game ended and, you know, just it ended exactly how I would want it, want it to. And it delivered on every promise I imagined in my head. Um, and that battle system, I was addicted to it. I would just 
sometimes I would like stop doing the plot and I would just kind of run around and like mess with the patterns a little bit. It was, it's just super fun. Yeah. I, I loved every minute of this game. All right. And uh, Pete, you're sort of in between here. You played this game a couple years ago and are revisiting it for the podcast. Uh, like how does it, how do you think it holds up among other RPGs of its ilk? Often with RPGs, I think Alana mentioned a couple of things often with, with these kinds of games that are really fun and are very charming and that we love. There's usually, you know, some things uh, like, for example, last time, we, uh, last uh, month we played Baton Kaitos, which is like this really incredible game, but we had so many issues with the plot and with certain things about it. Um, and that's just kind of like par for the course. But with this one, it's just, it's just, I, I don't know. The word I would use to describe it is like sleek. It's just, there's not too many blemishes on it. It, the pacing is good. The story is great. Characters are great, and um, it's just like a lot of fun, and it's very engaging throughout. And the, uh, you know, it mostly delivers. Uh, just, I, mean, I guess I'm just echoing what everyone else said, but yeah, I definitely agree. It's an awesome game. There's no real filler in this game at all. Like everything seems to matter. There's nothing that needs trimming, I don't think. So, yes, yeah, leak is probably the word I was looking for that I didn't pull out. So, yeah, this is a 25 or 30 hour game, and uh, I, I mean, I think my playthrough this time was right at 30 hours, and my old one from many years ago was 28. Uh, and and you know, JRPGs. Uh, often are much much longer than 30 hours so uh, like 25 to 30 hour game I, w- I would call medium length for the type of games that we play for this podcast and it i don't think there's a lot of wasted space like the, the most the, there's some elements of repetition if you repay if you replay parts of the game's plot to reach you know certain points of interest but it also get, lets you skip any dialogue very rapidly to get around that, and uh, and sometimes retreading areas you've been through before. Like, I mean, I'm not thrilled every time I have to run across the Lasvely Hills or the Grand Plains. <laughs> they are, you know, pretty good about letting you skip over that area, those areas, if you've already played them uh, in the timeline you're on. So, like, the, the the parts that are repetitive aren't even that repetitive, and it's a, it's in and out pretty fast in again 25 ish hours. Um, yeah, like, like this, this RPG is just, if you go in with the right expectation of it being a, a 2010 game that's 25 hours, I, I think it's really, really good. And, uh, I think we mentioned in the previous episode that there aren't a ton of play spaces in this game. Like, there's not that many dungeons or towns for what we would consider, uh, like a, maybe an epic RPG, but they're, uh, very dense and there's a lot of sort of good writing and good concepts in there. And I think one thing that uh, they pack in a, a surprising amount of is side quests that uh, play around with the uh, uh, that play around with the multiple timelines and time traveling gimmick. Um, and we didn't really touch side quests at all last episode, except for the one about um, growing conuts in the desert for possibly milita- uh, military purposes. Um, so, so does, and I, I know that we. Um, discussed a little bit off the air that uh, you have to complete 10 specific side quests to get the true ending of this game. And uh, so I, I think we each at least attempted some of those. So what do we feel? How do we feel about the different side quests? And do, do any of us have a favorite? Uh, I've got a favorite. I think I like the way that, again, like the main story, there's always like a hint to let you know what you should be going back to get kind of thing. Like you're never like left in the cold in this game. Which is like you might have to figure out some things, but there's always like a small hint, like with the 
one with the artist um, where you have to go and talk to him in um, Alastal in a certain time period. But then you remember, oh, I've met him in the inn in Grenorg. So you go forward in time to go and talk to him. And then you go back in time again to get the paint colour that he wants. And then you go and take it back to him. Like, there's enough of a lead-in for everything in this game that you don't ever feel like you're meandering. Um, in terms of a favourite, it is one of the ten. Um, it's the one about Viola, uh, who is a high-ranking general, lieutenant, or commander in the Alistair army. And, and it's she... a slightly tricky boss battle in a couple places. Yeah, she is quite tricky, actually. Um, but for a while, she's on your side because you are um, certainly in a in standard history, I think, because um, you have to defend the Sand Fortress, and she's kind of been exiled out to there. Because that, 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 that's alternate history, but you, but you fight her, uh, you fight her in Grenorg in standard history near the end of the game. That's right. Thank you. I will probably get this mixed up a few times. Um, but yeah, so you have to get somebody a diary, um, Viola's diary in particular, and a couple of other bits for medicine. And one point in the game, in the plot, and, it's, and I was thinking towards the end of the game, they're never going to reference this. Uh, Viola, when you're at the Sand Fortress, you walk in on her and she's coughing. And you don't know why and the game doesn't elaborate for a very long time and it turns out that like you get the diary off of her you have to talk to her like a couple of times and she gives it to you and you find out near the end of the game that the person you gave the diary to is the person who came up with the cure for her illness so at the end of the game if you've done this side quest she'll appear post credits in the hospital bed and they'll be like oh no don't worry we've got a cure for you Viola and she went I didn't tell you I was ill so she's been hiding this illness from everybody. Mm-hmm. And then the guy who found, who had the diary in the previous timeline, because it's all come together, he's like, oh no, I found it in your diary. And she never really questioned it. But but I thought I thought it was a really good example of like the quantum like time space and like how everything rolled together. And I really like Viola as a character. I think if you know me well enough, she probably fits into a lot of archetypes that I <laughs> always gravitate towards. Um but yeah, I, I just think that was a really cool, memorable moment for me because it, it, I was worried that it would be one thing that didn't get answered and it it, it kind of does get answered. But yeah, it, it stood out to me. Actually, most of those 10 side quests do because like, a lot of the named NPCs in this game and again, not really baggage. Like, Almost all of them have an important side quest attached to them. Like, I'm sure I won't say any of the others in case anybody else picks out one of them, but yeah, like everyone you meet has got a story and everybody's story arc is kind of fulfilled. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Viola because we didn't, I don't think we mentioned her in the previous episode. A uh, uh, really cool NPC me- measured uh, member of the short-haired lady gang and, uh, and, and, and middle-aged badass lady gang, which are, you know, un- unfortunately very small groups within, uh, within JRPG casts. But uh, they, they, make, they make her really cool and competent and... When you fight her uh, near the end of it's either chapter five or six in, in standard history, um, she sort of knows that uh, that the cause that she supports, which is you know the the fundamentalist government of Alistel, is kind of a farce, and knows that Hugo is is has been you know faking the presence of the prophet Noah for a couple years. But she fights anyway in its name because she has too much pride and doesn't want to like and doesn't want to just just shatter the worlds of all of her men that uh that that worship the the prophet Noah religion. She comes across as just almost sort of too good for Alistel, and uh, 
and I wasn't aware of the of that scene at the end because again, I'm 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 worried that I skipped uh, parts of the ending cutscenes because I, uh, you know, I, I I basically put down the DS and plugged in my microphone for uh, for, for recording today. <laughs> uh, th- that's a nice hopeful resolution to her story, and uh, uh, I I liked I liked that um sh- that side quest, but I think my favorite one was um was uh, probably the one with the. Uh, Oh, I forget her, her name starts with an L, but with, with the Satiros and uh, and and guardsmen that are in love. Is it Liesel? I can't remember. I know yeah. who you, Lise, Lise. It's, it's like it's, it's like Liesel or, or or Listel or something. She's she's one of Ott's companions in the first half of the game, and a human guardsman in Grenorg is in love with her, but she hmm. uh, uh, believes that um that beastmen and humans can't get along, so she rejects his advances. But later in the later in the story, uh. He tries to get, deliver a letter to her, but um, but dies uh, in the forest trying to do so. You you pick up the letter and give it to her and give it to uh, Liesel or whatever her name is, and she realizes that this human guardsman studied and learned the Satiro mm-hmm. and how to read and write the Satiro's language just so he could uh, reach out to her. But 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 and she was moved by it, and you can go back in time and uh, and show the letter to her and prevent his death. And, and and I I think that they can get together or or at least are, you know, spending time together in the epilogue if you complete that side quest. But but, but that that's the kind of, um, just just low key romantic side quest that I basically live and die for in RPGs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought of you when I did that one. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this is definitely a saucy yep. side quest oh, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. Not only does he learn the language, it's the marriage vows. Like he right, specifically yeah. writes down the marriage vows of the Satyros, which is a uh, adorable. Again, like. I thought it was going to be another throwaway side quest, and it wasn't. And I was like, you're actually giving all of these additional people arcs, and it's so interesting. She is a non-character. Like, if, she, if you had complete, completely cut her from the game and made that, uh, that acting troupe or dancing troupe just Ott and, uh, and, and Vessel? Or, uh, uh, um, oh, Vossel, the uncle, yeah. Yeah, yeah or just Ott and Vossel? That would have been fine. But instead, that, that you give this uh, this extra character a nice smiling portrait and um uh, and a dedicated side quest and a few lines that it, it is a memorable chunk of the game and and it, that's beautiful. Like they, they this game doesn't have any wasted space or any wasted characters except Marco. <laughs> I'm not gonna engage. I'm not gonna engage. <laughs> oh, oh, you know that, that's uh, I I that that did make me sick. Marco is a very good menu healer. Mm-hmm. Backup menu healing. He's he's like he's 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 like eight um, uh, medicinal herbs in one. That Marco. I also really love that side quest, and like not to talk about that one side quest again and again, but like um, Alana alluded to the like the vows, and I don't know if it was just me or if I was in like a particularly emotional mood, but I was like those were beautiful. Like mm-hmm. I stopped and did like a tiny little gasp when I read them because I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> No, I did too. Yeah, but that I'm known for being emotional, so yeah, maybe. <laughs> I love that side quest too for all the reasons everyone mentioned. So to not just say the same one, um, I will say that because this battle system is so awesome, I loved the gladiator fight side oh. quest. Oh, nice! I uh, I tried the gladiator fights a- after the required one for the story. But right. um, but this uh, this very big chubby bear defeated me in about fifteen <laughs> seconds. So I, I so I never revisited it. But so I love uh, those bears. Aren't they the ones that just like basically? I mean, they're, <laughs> they're big old bear. They're adorable, but they're deadly, man. They remind oh, yeah. me of I um. Come back way later. Uh, uh, Gen three Pokemon fans. These remind me of slacking. 
because yes. they they basically do nothing for one or two turns and then have a devastating attack and then do nothing for a few turns then a devastating attack. So th- that that's uh, if you're you know smart enough at prediction, it's probably not that challenging a fight. But it completely wiped me when I tried to play it immediately in that point in the story, <laughs> and, yeah, and I, never, so I never went back. I guess I guess we're pretty much like at this point. So, but I'll just mention in case we don't want to bring this up yet. But like so. At that city where you have the gladiator fights, you have to you have to save that city from a giant hell spider. There's this enormous, like, two story tall yeah, it's spider. A, it, it, it's Cygnus. It's Cygnus is the name of the city, and uh, um, th- that's a uh, that, that's pretty much where we cut off in the story right. uh, um, uh, from the previous episode. This would be like around the middle of chapter four. But I just love that for the gladiator fights. One the I think it's the last fight is like another hell spider. Like they just they were like terrified by the hell spider attack, but they just also have one around for <laughs> fighting in, in, the, in the arena. Yeah, an even more powerful hell spider just you know right. sitting, sitting in the corner. <laughs> I do I do not appreciate it when the game throws bosses at me that take up the entire grid because that means I cannot play the game in my favorite in my favorite way, which is setting ot traps. Yeah. Yeah. Point. Yeah, it's a bit annoying, isn't it? Especially mm-hmm. if you go into that fight with art. Luckily, the game's like pretty generous with save points and that, so you can just go back. And she's not like, certainly for like the end boss, which also takes up the entire grid and you can't push around. Um, like by that point, she's got enough skills that you could probably get by. But yeah, yeah, by the time you go into the Hell Spider, which is can kill her in one hit easily. Like it's a it's, it's a pretty famous difficulty spike in this game, and I'm surprised that how like late in the game it was like i'd almost forgotten about it and then when the sprite came up on screen i was like i've seen screenshots of that everywhere kind of thing i think you actually need to use odd in that fight like i'm trying to remember but i think when you go to that node you only have stock and odd so like you have to use her against the immovable character which is a very think... interesting choice I, on a game dev I, part. I, I think marco and rainy are like, 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 like they joined back with you like right before the fight yeah, I didn't use her. I yeah. definitely didn't use her for Cygnus, uh, the one in Cygnus. Maybe I made my life a million times harder than it needed to be. <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, Ot is still a very capable healer. She learns, um, yeah. she learns uh, all uh, most of the um, healing spells that Stock and Marco learn, but uh, but she needs empty, uh, uh, like at least one empty space on the board to use her trap spells. So, like, she'll have sort of a mediocre physical offense, pretty good healing. Uh, and uh, and those amazing elemental traps, but those, but you know that last part of her kit is useless in um, in fights against the Hell Spider and a couple of the end game bosses that take up the whole grid. So that w- it's an unpleasant surprise whenever I had to fight one of those and Ot was on my teams. Like maybe I should reload and and switch to like a, a rainy team or something instead. And yeah. Caleb, it makes sense you would think that because just before that you're like imprisoned in Cygnus and you. And you're you're really limited by like the leader, with what you can do. You could you would imagine that you don't have all your characters with you. Yeah, I think like I just didn't realize that you know the the next node also connected or something. So I just you know I slugged through it, um, and then just real quick you know before we so that we don't spend the entire podcast on side quests. But my favorite is like super shallow because it's just the one that made me laugh the most. The I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly the vainquer uh side quest oh i really like that one too yeah i loved it so like (laughs) for for the listeners like basically the setup is 
you know, some of your attack skills you learn by leveling up, some you learn from, like, tomes and books and scrolls. Mm -hmm. So Vainquar just has, like, half the scrolls in the game. And it's incredible, because to meet him, you have to meet his disciples, and they each give you this, like, throwaway task to do. And just every disciple I met had me cackling. Like, the, the, the kid one was way too serious about it. The other guy, like, kept forgetting that he was supposed to give you a quest, and then by far the best one was the disciple in Celestia. She was like, the prophecy foretold that it's over in that bush. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, I loved it. Yeah, it's really funny, and also, like, you have to answer, like, three riddles, and you're given, like, answers to them, I think, and it's like, where do you, what do you find in the past? Hope. What do you find in the present? Something else. What do you find in the future? And it kind of, like, it's really funny and really lighthearted, and I think it's really funny that why is the master named? Because I think the continent is also called Vanquir. So why why is he named after the continent? But anyway, um... yes, that was so interesting. <laughs> I don't think they ever address it, but it's. All right, I guess I never beat him. <laughs> no, I didn't do that bit either. But like, it feels like the quest, although it's like really light hearted, it kind of like fills out the philosophy of the game. Because yeah, like, what's Stock doing? Going back into time to find hope and change the future, essentially. So. Yeah, it was. It's a pretty important side quest because we were discussing like a couple of days before we recorded this. Like we were trying to work out what the ten key side quests were, mm-hmm. and this one was one of the ones that kept coming up because we were like, "I'm sure it's this one. I'm sure it's this one," and it's not, which feels a bit odd. Maybe part of it is, but yeah, it feels like an important side quest, especially when it's like light and humor as well. So yeah, and in the 3DS version, they even like make it one of the necessary ones. Maybe. Maybe yeah. that's it. And maybe we were just cross-pollinating um, uh, like DS guides with 3DS guides here, which which makes sense because I think that um, like like the 3DS does add that whole uh, new ending and and third timeline, but if you just stick to the parts that were in the original 3S, it's three the original DS version. It's almost entirely unchanged. Like the, uh, I I, th- I think the translation might be different, but. The, if you just use a DS guide in the 3DS version, you will get through the game basically accurately. It's a uh, it, it's a mm. it's a pretty faithful recreation, and uh, and the uh, Master Vancouver ca- uh, quest, it, it's it's not really clear what Vancouver is because he looks like a gob like a, one of those goblin <laughs> mages with a big mustache, yeah. I think, and uh, uh, he's named after the continent. And if you do like all the side quest, all of his side quests uh, at the very end of the game, you can get sort of an ultimate sword from him. Um, the the the, uh, the uh, is it the true historica? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, the historica is a is the sword you get near the end of the game uh, as part of the plot, and you can upgrade it to the true historica if you uh, if you defeat Vancouver in battle after doing uh, after uh, going through. Uh, I, I think I think you have to learn all of the Ot, Erica, and Stock abilities. From yeah, him first. Yeah, because the ones he teaches. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, funnier than those. Like, I mean, uh, the unlocking the Vancouver side quest is 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 a has some funny moments. But I thought it was sort of funnier when, uh, when you talk to the trainer that um teaches Marco and Rainy their uh their quests. He's uh he's very much like Arlie Ermy drill sergeant. Like like you will learn your skills from me if you give me these scrolls. Please find these eight scrolls. And Stock just nonchalantly guesses. Hmm. You probably had those eight, and then pawned them, and now you need yeah. them back. But they had been sold already, <laughs> and and, uh, and it's uh, it becomes abundantly clear that this uh, guy sold a bunch of ability scrolls that he should not have sold, and uh, 
I, I don't know. There's a, there's this game is mostly self serious in its uh, in its writing, but it it allows some you know goofy JRPG humor now and then that uh, that I mostly like. Yeah, I think I've, I want to say something else on the Vanquer quest, but I've just remembered suddenly now that like even Rosh's like skill leveling quest is really funny. Oh yeah, because you have to get um like um things for his gauntlet, don't you? That um, cores. Oh, mm-hmm. the, um, oh my god, what's her name? Cor- oh, I feel uh, really uh, bad. Oh, his his girlfriend Sonia. Mm-hmm. Sonia, yeah. You have to get like cores to help her like rebuild the gauntlet, and she really enjoys doing it. And he's like terrified of her doing it every time, and it's great. Like, Rosh is like quite. I, I always thought of him as a bit more stoic, but he's obviously a bit more lighter. But like those moments really like humanized him even more, especially after like all of the traumatic events he's been through. So yeah, yeah this gameplay is like it, it's sensible, like a sensible level of goofy JRPG humor, like you've said, like nothing to you know some typical atlas persona humor sometimes that can get a little bit mm, occasionally so some dumb thing i've just thought of with vanquer like this is probably completely out of the box so please feel free to tell me but um do you think he may have been like the first sacrifice or one of the first if he's got like the ultimate sword and like at the end of the game and i'm jumping way ahead like the sacrifice, who we will name in a bit, says, "I will become part of the world. I will never leave you." Yeah. So maybe Vanquer was at one point, and they named the continent after him. Who knows? Just and it would also make sense, like if he was ancient, ancient royalty. That could explain why the names match. Like they might have named yeah. the continent after the royal. F- Ooh, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't think I don't think there's anything explicit leading there, but that that's a that's a very fair inference. That that's that's quite possible. I love that theory. Yeah. All right, put a pin in it, Atlas. Come back to me. <laughs> I don't think anyone at Atlas is thinking about this game at any time. <laughs> Boo! Not fair. Yeah, but yeah, they should. Mm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure they should. I like. I don't know if I. I don't think. I don't know if this game needs a follow up necessarily. But the well, uh, follow up. But just to have it on their minds for whatever they're working on, you know. Right. So where were we? Uh, where the where the story left off? Um, they uh, they were in the alternate timeline. They're about to go to war. Uh, uh, I should say, Cygnus and Celestia together were going to go to war with Alistel, who had mostly fought off Grenorg. And in the standard timeline, um, you're still skulking around, uh, trying to like, like trying to find a way to to save the world from sand from desertification, and you're and you end up uh, accidentally dropped in Cygnus, uh, which was the gladiator desert town that we've mentioned a couple times already. And and the king of Cygnus, Garland, is so amusing to me because he seems to think that basically anything should be able to be settled with duels or fights. And I and I and I I respect his uh, his like holding to that principle after he challenges you to a duel within minutes of meeting stock. He reminds me of another leader in another game, and I cannot remember for the life of me who he reminds me. He, remi- of. he reminded me of Raubon from FF14. Oh my god! Yes. Uh, uh, but uh, different things happen to Garland and Raubon, but just from from the kind of sword they use to like the their builds and and haircuts reminded me of Raubon. But uh, 
but but like he uh, Garland is sort of a big burly desert sultan who cares about integrity and strength very much, but is basically a fair ruler and not a uh, an awful despot like Protea in Grenorg. I kind of have a bone to pick with Garland. Like they, you know, the the the, the game definitely paints him as that like you know ideal leader, and like they're like he's a man of the people, but also he's like a slaver and uses slaves and i like i could not understand why both of those things were true in the game yeah he too was one wasn't he at some point like you you pick up his armlet don't you and he's like oh my parents gave it to me when they sent me off to fight and i was like what (laughs) yeah it's unclear if he was a slave or not but he was definitely a gladiator and and uh, and rose through the ranks there before uh before joining the government and i'm not sure if Slavery is widespread in Cygnus, but um, but uh, Garland's uh, minister dude definitely engages in it. Uh, you oh, know God, who I mean? Yeah. I'm the, the 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 guy who who ends up betraying uh, Cygnus and then running away. Yeah, yeah, I can't oh, remember his name, but yeah, I can't remember his name either. Capital Slimeball. <laughs> yeah, I'll do. I mean, in some way, that all kind of makes sense, though. I mean, he's like, I mean, he, at least we see we see those kinds of stories. Uh, you know, like marginalized folks turned oppressors and you know we see um uh, really really disgusting policies um kind of ignored by the people or accepted by the people so they can still respect him as he engages in in bad things um because just the values of that culture you know could be that way or whatever I mean, it's something that we see. I mean, you mentioned all that, and it's true. It, but it still kind of makes a, a sense, a kind of sense to me in, in a gross way. In a gross way that that we've seen throughout our own history, you know. And in the game, like um, we were saying last episode, weren't we? That like nobody's really good or bad. Like nobody, nobody is in a good, a totally good light here. And again, like the whole game kind of ends on the whole. You shouldn't look at anything as just black and white. Which yeah, we know, but. Yeah, like, nobody is totally in the right, or everybody has their own sense of justice, and it just rubs, like, it's not, it's not stock. It's not, it's not what stock agrees with, essentially, but... Even even stock, even stock is a spook, though, you know? Like, even he's, like, a a CIA guy, so, you know, so you could, you could potentially have a bone to pick with stock. I think, fundamentally, stock is a good person, you know? You, You can't take a fish out of water, you know, you kind of end up in a situation that you're in, you know, through no fault of your own necessarily, but particularly with stock, that's the case as, as we'll talk about later. But, but yeah, I mean, you could criticize stock even. Uh, yeah. E- even the, uh, the two cities of beast folk, um, who are oppressed races that have, um, definitely suffered injustices, um, from Gnorg and, and Alistel and probably also Cygnus. Like when you visit for them for the first time, they are extremely xenophobic towards humans and, and are, somewhere in between of completely unable to trust them and bent on bloodthirsty revenge, which is definitely not as bad as the, uh, as the decades or centuries of an, of oppressive regimes, um, of working against them. But, you know, still is kind of a bad look for, for having, having them being so inhospitable when you're a group, like the one group of humans trying to do the most good. So it's, uh yeah yeah no one's really uh no one's really the good guy in this game uh, and even again even stock is sort of confronted with uh with, with you know the hor- like the horrors of both sides of the of the war and is it's made pretty cl- it's made evident pretty clear that 
um, Alistel is not is not run by good people. So it's. I, I think ultimately the message of this game isn't really isn't political as much as environmental, uh, because they, they uh, make it clear at the end of the game that the, the greatest threat to the world is the desert is the desertification and not necessarily uh, the, the wars and. Like, like they like the game communicates that that this should be the issue that unites us all, but it, it's not uniting us all because of uh you know be, be, because of human things. Mm, I, I I mean yeah, this game is morally gray, but uh, does have an environmentalism message that I think is 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 pretty consistent. Yeah, definitely, and like I won't jump to the end right now, but like given. The war kind of ends in game, like that moment with Hugo with the prophet, like where he brings out the mannequin. That's kind of where the war ends because they've already taken over Grenorg, and then the people of Alastor find out that actually their prophet has been dead for the last two or three years. Like he's not even bedridden; he's dead. Like he's it's so Hugo's been preaching all these words all this time, and this person doesn't even exist anymore. So they've been lied to, and so they rebel and that's kind of it but like the environmentalist message like the desertification does not get resolved (laughs) like it doesn't end like the sacrificial ritual that the royal family have to undertake to kind of it's it's essentially like a band-aid like they're just putting another bandage over the wound and then all of a sudden it bleeds out again because the desertification is going to ramp up again because the sacrifice only kind of like stops slows it down rather than stops it so yeah it's definitely it's a, it's a really interesting yeah I, I think that it's the ending is vague but s- sort of optimistic like uh yeah i i i think that i mean i don't want to make this uh too much of an allegory but uh, like similar to the real life issue of global global ch- climate change it's it, it can't be fixed instantly mm-hmm. um uh like they they uh part of the conflict is that uh um uh should we just ju- uh, jump into end game spoilers now we can do yeah we can jump around a little right. bit anyway that's fine right. stock is ernst who is uh uh um, erica's long lost brother who was presumed dead and Heiss is uh, Stock and Erica's uncle, the um, the younger brother of the late King Victor. Uh, and the ritual that the Grenorg royal family has been perpetuating for centuries to prevent desertification involves one member of the royal family, like giving their soul to one of their siblings or, or part of their soul to one of their siblings. That sibling using the power of flux, which is the White and Black Chronicles, to sort of enhance their souls and enrich it. And then the uh, the chronicle holder sacrificing themselves, giving their enriched super soul back to the back to their sibling, and then their sibling using that channeling that soul back into the planet to sort of heal the planet or provide that barrier uh, that uh, that band aid or that uh, that preventative measure to hold off the desertification. So basically, once per generation, a member of the royal family has to sacrifice themselves in a somewhat harrowing ritual. And but Heiss, um, while he was learning to use the uh, chronicle, which is you know a, again a tradition in the royal family, he I, I think what happened was he basically just completely gave in to despair, with uh, just you know no, because no matter what outcome he changed, 
the, the desertification continued, and uh, and just hum- and just uh, the world would, would like suffering would increase, bloodshed would increase. He couldn't get, he couldn't find positive outcomes, and he just completely gave in to, I guess, a version of nihilism, and just, and and uh, and decided that it was a, the best outcome was to speed up the desertification and just let the world die. And which is, you know, that is some super villain uh, thinking there. And so he uh, absconded with uh, with the the Chronicles and with Ernst, uh, but messing around with his memory and giving him amnesia, renaming him Stock, and uh, and and defecting to uh, to Alistel, and um, and basically just used the black and white Chronicles so much that it rapidly aged him and twisted his form, which is why he looks a little bit like a humanoid vulture in the in in game. Even though, even though he presumably just should be a middle-aged human, uh, and decided to um, make Stock his successor in using the Chronicle, just like just like they would have normally in the in the Grenorg royal family, but instead hoping that Stock would uh, would share his uh, vision of speeding up the desertification. Okay, that was a long monologue, and I apologize. But uh, <laughs> so he orchestrates giving Stock the Chronicle and uh, and sort of continuing manipulating timelines, thinking that Stock will see the world the way he does. But Stock is basically a good person, so it doesn't work out that way, and uh, and you end up clashing. But uh, near the end of the game, it, instead of breaking the cycle and and solving des- desertification. The, the what you do is um, is perpetuate the cycle, and that's a little unsatisfying. But I but I, I mean also communicates this is a global problem that you can't solve with magic, and we just have to do the best we can with with the with the technology and magic we have. And so the scenes before the credits are somewhat optimistic. Like you, you see P, uh, NPCs that you engage with mo- mostly. Uh, Living their lives happily and trying their best, and now and uh, and beast kind and humans are mixing in in, uh, in all of the different cities, um, which you know suggests that the relationships between the uh, the different tribes are 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 improved now that the war between Alistil and Grenorg is over. But uh, they're still threatened by this global issue, and they're still using this these barbaric methods to uh, combat it because that's what they have, and that's a little dark and a little vague. But it, I think the world state is a little bit better than it was before because of the, you know, of the lack of war and the increased harmony. But but it's still, uh, it, it's I mean the 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 desertification does not go away, and I think maybe that uh, making it go away or solving it in one stroke is something that the 3DS remake does, which I which I don't think which I don't think really fits. I don't think it does either. No, and. Yeah, it doesn't need a neat little bow to tie it all up. Um, one thing I want to ask, actually, everybody, because I want to make sure I've understood this properly as well, like the stock earns thing. Like, the game is very. I don't think I don't remember if it ever clarifies, but like at one point, I think it's not long after you've met Erica, and she says to Stock, like, "Oh, you remind me of my brother, but he was killed by my father because he was too popular." Um, and I think it's referred to again. But, like, there's a few discussions where once Stock knows that he is Ernst, that he has part of Erica's soul inside him. Yeah. So is he, like, revived? Is he killed and then revived with part of her soul? Like, I didn't really get that. It's unclear, but the ritual does involve uh, the sacrifice receiving half of the soul of the caster. And then... 
and, okay. and, and then and the, so they have like a super soul and by using by using the chronicle or by using flux and time traveling their their super soul gets stronger and stronger and stronger and then at the time of the ritual they uh the the sacrifice gives up their one and a half souls uh to the planet to to you know, continue the band-aid right okay and 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 Ott can tell that uh stock and um and heist have these unusually unusually glowing souls and she realizes they're 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 destined to be sacrifices which which you know causes her great distress yeah and i think the game sort of you know just in its artful language sometimes refers to it as like giving the whole soul or like that's you know how it, i understood it in the sentence and sometimes it says it refers to it as a fragment so i had that you know same confusion for a large proportion of the game right okay i'm glad it's not just me then yeah i picked up on that the end of last episode i said like well, how much do Art and Erica know? And obviously Erica knows more because this is the royal family's ritual that they've been doing for years and years and years. But Art being a shaman and knowing about their souls makes total sense. Like, she's the remember at the dinner table at the Sand Fortress where she, like, jumps up and down and is like, no, Stock, I don't want you to go. I don't want you to do this thing. And, like, she's very adamant because she knows... She understands that Stock will probably give up his life regardless, so she doesn't want to lose him. She doesn't think that sacrifice is the way to save the world. And Stock doesn't think that either. Like, at one point, I think there's a bit where, like, Erica tells him what she has to do, and Stock goes, you can't just sacrifice one person to essentially extend the time we've got. Like, that doesn't solve anything. So he does want to, like, earlier on he wants to stop it, but then eventually he, like, accepts his role, maybe because it's him. I don't know. But, yeah, like, there's a couple of really interesting shifts around for him and also out coming, like, to terms with it and understanding, and at least coming out with the truth from her perspective because she knows what's going on kind of thing. Yeah, I think... I feel like it ending with him, you know, choosing to to perpetuate the cycle is you know, in my opinion, the perfect way to end this game. Because, you know, we kind of have that classic JRPG dichotomy where all the villains are self-serving and all of our heroes are, you know, mostly altruistic. Um, but I think this game really delivers on that dichotomy because, you know, it makes it clear that the altruism is not easy. You know, Stock is not sacrificing himself because he's like, oh, there's nothing else I can do. I'm the hero. I've got it. You know, it's 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 a choice that really weighs on him um, and I think by, you know, the game ending that way, they're really emphasizing the the idea that while, you know, you know, altruism and self-serving decisions are not black and white, exactly like you guys have been talking about, it's, you know, the altruism is still worth it in the end, even, you know, even though it's not an easy decision, even though it comes with pain, like we should still work towards altruism and i you know that's kind of what i got from the ending for the most part you know on top of the the environmental messages and and again i'm just used to playing games where there's a cycle of suffering there's an injustice to this cycle so we need to break the cycle and build something better um like like that that's a more typical uh sort of world shaping ending for a jrpg but for this one is more like discovering what the cycle is uh, like uh, and and finding out how the main villain is is exploiting the cycle, but instead of solving the if if the cycle's a problem, instead of solving the problem, you just uh, the main character 
self-sacrifices to perpetuate the cycle so one more generation can live like that's the, it, it a way that feels like depressingly lower stakes than saving the world forever but it feels a little bit more real than just wrapping up everything neatly in a bow and uh, and w- with you know the world is saved written on the card yeah i totally agree yeah i agree a neat bow i think would have kind of ruined the ending for me this um i'm gonna talk about another game uh for about one minute and it's one of my favorite games of the past 10 years so uh (laughs) uh listeners if you uh if you don't want to be spoiled slightly on dragon quest 11 then maybe uh uh, then maybe fast forward about a minute dragon quest 11 has sort of a is divided clearly into three acts and the ending of the second act is a, is sort of set in a bleak world that has suffered greatly. And in Act Three, you f- find a means to correct the suffering and make and make a, and sort of fix the the uh, all the bad things that happened in Act Two. And that the fan base is divided on this. Like some people wanted the game to act to end in Act Two and see the people rebuild from all the horrible things that happened there and some fans are like no well i i want things to be wrapped up nicely and act 3 fix like fixes what was broken in act 2 and i i i, I this is weird i think i i think i like the neat bow in in dragon quest 11 and would prefer not to have a neat bow in 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 radiant historia because of just the nature of those two problems and the execution of them especially since the writer uh, yuji hori the writer of dragon quest typically does like to like to tie up loose loose plot threads um, so, so that sort of fits his style, but I, I don't know. I don't think I always want to have a bleak, vaguely optimistic ending, but I think it works for, dra- for Radiant Historia and, w- and works a little less in Dragon Quest XI. So, so like, this isn't unprecedented in RPGs exactly, but I, I mean, sometimes I want the bow and sometimes I don't. I think it's down to the tone of the game, personally. Like, Dragon Quest XI, even though some really dark stuff happens in, you know, the second phase and the third phase, which is called the post-game, but it kind of is the third phase. It's, like, it's, it's not it's a post-game. The credits roll after Act 2, but but better credits roll after Act 3. It's, it's, it's a three-act it's oh, three, yeah. three game, even though the third act is, some, is usually called the post-game. Yeah, yeah I'm like... I remember, because I was on the Dragon Quest XI spoiler cast a few years ago, I did not like how Act 2 ended. And I think it's the tone and the writing of Dragon Quest. It's just so different. Like, it's um, there's something more, and, uh, you know, you, you and Zach and other various Dragon Quest fans have talked about, like, the tone of Dragon Quest games. is like, there's something very warm and very family-orientated and very friend-orientated around them. Whereas Radiant Historia is dealing with a lot more, like, environmentalism, politics, moral, morality, and things like that. And, like, it would feel weird for a game with a group of protagonists who, um, like, they've essentially, you know, they've all got, they, some of them play parts in the, you know, in history and various other, you know, no, everyone's culpable for something, essentially, in that game. And, like, it would feel weird to give everybody in that game a nice happy ending if that makes sense and it's not no not it's not happy ending it it, it is optimistic because even though the cycle is going to carry on they've kind of accepted it and they're going to move on and you know what's the lesser of two evils like killing one person to save the world or killing everybody and losing everything you know um so yeah, it's the tonal difference between the two games. Like, Radiant Historia is fairly mature and fairly... I hate using that word in that context, but, like, 
it's fairly grounded and fairly like real, I suppose. Whereas there's something very fantastical about Dragon Quest. Like it's warm, it's fun, it's friendly, and even if horrible things happen in those games, like it didn't feel right leaving it at the end of Act Two. It felt very deliberate that it had to have a happy ending and a good happy ending, like a perfect ending, I suppose. So yeah, I, I think it's a tone thing, personally. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely depends on what the writers' goals were and, and everything, and what what um, what the ending, particularly the ending I got with in Radiant Historia, which was not the true ending. Um, we can talk. About, I guess we'll talk about it later. But um, I got the ending where stock stays away (laughs) i'll I'll put it that way and that did make a lot of sense to me because um in radiant historia and in what appear to be the goals of the writers of of radiant historia what that does is it makes the stakes actually matter i mean it it, if if everything would have been hunky-dory then nothing would have it would have felt like maybe not nothing mattered but less would have mattered you know yeah, that's how I feel. Like, I don't... Like, a lot of people were asking me and other people online, like, should I try the 3DS version or the DS version? And ultimately, like, I don't think it makes a difference. But the 3DS version, again, that extra timeline and that extra chapter opens up that possibility that there is a nice bow at the end of it. And it it, it feels weirdly unsatisfying to me. Like, that doesn't appeal to me. Like, I left Radiant Historia content for the most part, with how it ended. I have one niggle, which I might bring up in a bit, but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the tone of the two different games is what is uh, a major reason why I'm, why I'm sort of happy with how they both turn out, uh, and, and specifically talking about the DS version of Radiant Historia, not the 3DS version. <laughs> um, because, again, like, like Dragon Quest is... Dragon Quest games are like fairy tales, where there is some form of a happily ever after, and and like and and the plot threads get tied, um, like uh, the plot threads do resolve, and um, Radiant Historia is of a tone of like different um, like different ilks of RPGs that are less fairy tales and more fantasy epics that have characters that feel more uh, more human and um, but situations that are that are fantastical and impossible. So I I think that like Radiant Historia is like goes for a twinge of realism with having desertification mm-hmm. being an unsolvable problem that they that they can only do they can only do their best with what they have like I the f- one feeling I got from the end game of Radiant Historia is uh the kingdoms are no longer at war and now people like Raul and Sonia and Eruka are making s- fighting desertification like a major part of their of their lives now like like it, when when that was not the case at the beginning of the game. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like Protea's dead, so like Erica's the... queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it did seem like a door might have been left open a crack there. With um, the early on, you understand that the desertification is happening as a result of a mana leaving the earth, and um, you know, there's like a mana tree in the game, and some people comment on that and one of the endings. Um, so um, it seems like, like you said, like it gives them an opportunity to, to perhaps work on the desertification and that there might be a future there um, as far as 
maybe someday reversing it or stopping it or something. But yeah, I do wonder. I mean, I'm I'm glad it doesn't really go into it. It does allow for these kinds of discussions. Yeah, a little bit yeah. trials of mana, a little bit tales of Fantasia with when with man, if mana is leaving the country and there's a mana tree involved. Um, <laughs> you know, I was thinking of tales of Symphonia quite a lot through this game with the whole like you sacrifice somebody to extend the life of the country. Mm, that's right. Like the same way in Tales of Symphonia that you sacrifice the Chosen to save Silveron and then the mana flow comes to Silveron and then the Tethyala side has to, oh, get their own Chosen to do the same and reverse the cycle. So it's very similar. Yeah. But uh, I mean, but the arc of Tales of Symphonia and Tales of Fantasia, because again, Symphonia is a prequel to Fantasia, is about breaking, uh, breaking yeah. as, as an, an unjust cycle. And, um, yeah. and... And the, but the tone, the, the tone of the end game of Radiant Historia is like like the like the the best solution is to perpetuate an unfair cycle, which is weird, but um, but fits, mm -hmm. but fits. And I mean, you you know, the the best art is something that makes you think and something that makes you feel. And I and this, I thought that this ending was, you know, elicited feelings and was indeed thought provoking, at least enough for an hour plus long podcast. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm impressed with what Radiant Historia did with its concepts and ideas in a relatively small package of being a short-ish DSRPG. It's, it's, again, what this game does with its somewhat limited horsepower is very impressive to me. I, I, just, I just wish that we got a little bit more out of uh, uh, Rosh, Gafka, and Erika gameplay-wise, because I think by the, by, the, by the end of the yeah. game, by the end of the game, I, am, I had so much more fun building teams around them than around Marco or Rainey that it's that I'm like man it is unfair that they are 10 levels behind uh Marco and Rainy only for timing reasons. Yeah, it's a little frustrating and actually like I used a really strange final party and I'll get to that like a little bit maybe but like yeah, like that there's that time between like chapter 3 and 4 isn't there where like Rosh is a solid like 10 to 12 levels behind every Actually, I think he's like level 15 and I think I was level 31 and I was like are you kidding? And this was right before. So like the beginning of chapter four on both sides has a really annoying boss. One side has the spider. The other one has this big robot, which is a oh. massive pain. Like I didn't have any trouble with the spider because I knew it was coming. And so I was like, you know, put like anti-poison stuff on. But like this robot took me a solid six goes. To I, do. I, I beat that robot a little too easily because I had um, one of Ott's optional skills that you get from Vancour. The the yeah. I had I had the Star Lightning Trap, which killed the robot in in three applications. <laughs> oh my god, those like Star Traps. Are <laughs> the Star Traps are crazy. <laughs> um, but so but uh, it, by the end of the game, all of my favorite part, my, my two favorite parties by far are Stock Ott. Uh, Roche and st and stock at um, uh, Gafka because Roche and Gafka are similar in that they're big tanky dudes with some push pull moves and some other tricks, but their other tricks are so great. Like like Gafka, um, did you get the Wind God skill for Gafka? Oh yes! Holy moly! <laughs> um, it, Broke him. <laughs> yeah, it 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 it, uh, it drags it pushes or pulls every single enemy into the center square if they're if they're movable if they're movable and does a bunch of damage. So if you so if just with a stock at Gafka team, you can very easily do a trap, wind god fist, and then a push and just annihilate everything in one in uh, in in three turns. It's and it works against some bosses extremely well, but uh, all those crystals in the last couple dungeons throw a wrench into things a little bit. And um, and and Roche uh, doesn't have as many fancy push pull moves as Gafka does, but he 
is so tanky and deals so much damage and like things like the haste core and uh in uh which you know gives him some uh like the most impressive boost in the game uh and uh and he has a lot of entire row or entire column moves that are really really effective so I I I like I really liked Roche and Gafka and I wish I could use them more and and Erica's move set gets really powerful towards the late game but you barely oh, get to exp- yeah you barely get to explore it because she's not she's not even in the party for like 75% of the final dungeons Yeah right I used her to get you know when you have to go back through the sewers mm-hmm. um I used her there cuz I had like that AoE light spell that was ridiculously good and she's like she's I think she's either as fast as Art or she's the second fastest character yep. like she would always go first and she would wipe out every enemy on screen and it was like but yeah cuz she's not in she's not in the final dungeon of one timeline and then she's not in the penultimate dungeon of the other timeline and it's like by the time you get her back Again, she's like level thirty-eight, and I'm level forty-nine, and it's like, okay, <laughs> like I wish it would distribute this um, experience. It, it's not; it doesn't take forever to them to catch up, but I do wish it distributed it a little bit better. And uh, the thing is, this is hardly a complaint. I mean, this is game balance stuff we're mostly talking about. But I love how different these seven characters are. They all have wildly different silhouettes. Like, like, um, uh, <laughs> uh like Erica is a very uh. Um, I don't know, like a what, what, what's the right word for this? Um, uh, like an anachronistic princess, because she sort of wears body armor, but also a dress and a crown, and wields guns, and has short curly hair instead of long, long flowing princessy hair, uh, and like, uh, and and just like the the body types of. Roche and Gafka are just wildly different from everyone else, and just like if you have a, my favorite party is again, uh, like one of them is stock Roche. Uh, and they are three completely different looking characters that are that are, are they don't all fit into the same rectangular sprite like an F, like a Final Fantasy VI. So like I just love the different styles and different silhouettes and different vibes of of the seven characters, and I just wish we got more out of the less common ones. Yeah, I used um st- for the final boss. I used Stock, Gafka, and Marco, which. No spell casters at all for a start, which is a bit odd. So stock, like, can Mar- heal at least. stock can heal at least, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. Stock and Marco can heal as well. But oh, like Marco, oh, of course, whoops. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know you I, don't use I, it. I, 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 I completely forgot most of Marco's moveset, intentionally. <laughs> um, but yeah, like he has a couple of buffs, and I just used him to use like items and stuff, whereas like I would do Gafka to do like um, when God Fist or Triple Hit, especially on Apocrypha. Which is the final boss? Um, oh, and uh, and and Muso, I think, is a guarantee. Yeah. If, if the enemy is in the center square or takes up the whole screen, like the, like a, like the Apocrypha boss, it's, it's like it, it's. I thought it was like eleven or twelve, <laughs> but it could be. Yeah, but, but it, it it builds up the combo so hugely that if you have if you throw in two Musos and then a big hit from 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 stock or a spellcaster, like like even one of Rainey's uh, like like G elemental spells, it's awesome just just exploiting the combo system with uh, with Gafka's multi-hit attack and um and I know he's not my favorite but uh but Marco's uh spin attack is pretty good for that as well yeah i you know kind of echo you your guys complaints with the, the 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 level distribution and it's a huge pet peeve for me in <laughs> the entire genre so like i didn't even bother like it, it, it's a bummer, but I didn't even bother experimenting with the three characters that are never around. So, I you know I found my I found my home in stock Art and Marco, and just loved every minute of it. It's it's weird, like um, 
you know, Solosi's been alluding to how, like, frail Marco is and how hard he is to use, but for some reason with Ott, like, combining their strengths, it, like, my team was basically unkillable because they had just the right defensive buffs, insane amounts of healing, status, you know, immediate status healing. And, and, and because know, that just worked really well for me. And because Marco's attacks are useless, you can always give him the one of the swords that just bo- gives a huge boost to magic or 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 boosts HP a little bit. Like I know, yeah, I know that, boosted his HP, yeah, and then the, he was actually like probably yeah, yeah. my tankiest character. Yeah, one of them is the Gaia sword, I think. But the, but there's there's a, there's a couple swords that are that that stock can also equip that are basically mag- um for building up your magic and not your attack. There is one thing that makes him really good, and I think Erica also gets this skill, but it's trans turn, yep. um, which yes. you basically take another character and replace his turn with their turn, and like the, fun, the the way to be the final boss is essentially chain up eleven chains and then like just use trans turn whenever you have Marcos, apart from like the last turn maybe which you might heal. It's ridiculous, and it only costs what three MP or something tiny, so it's like. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, I agree. The best way to use Marco is to have other people take his turns. Agreed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not going to fight you on that one. I, there were some boss fights where I basically had two odds because I was just using his trans turn liberally, and it was incredible. Or you can, do, or you can use, or you can use er- Erica's, but she also has offense and, uh, and is way faster than Marco. But, any, uh, but anyway, <sighs> we don't need to get into weird character arguments, but I think we basically agree that the, um, these characters are likable and, and fun, but maybe the there's an availability issue here. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame, especially like when you get to the final dungeon, which uh, it's a little bit. Of, it's not annoying. Uh, it's annoying. It's no, not it's, hard. An, it's, it's annoying. annoying. The, the, those floating blocks there's... and those those uh, stationary crystals and floating blocks. Not a fan of them. And then pulling them. the barrel like all the way back across. <laughs> Just for a scroll. Yeah, like for God's sake. Yeah, I got, I got so sick gimmick. of the crystals. I would um I would walk into them and then immediately run away with Ot or Erica. Just, just, oh yeah, just I didn't to get, fight them. Just to get them out of my hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't fight them because the only thing you can do with them is like either pull them in or you can hit them in the air and do an air combo with them. But they're so tanky because they're what you fight with Viola, and they're such a pain in the Viola fight because they're like just doing magic all the time and it's like. And they heal, and she heals them, and it's like, well, great. The, the, the one nice thing about I, I actually had more trouble with the giant spider fight below the second, before the second Viola fight, because the way that Viola and her minions are positioned uh, perfectly fits the stock Will-O-The-Wisp skill. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. I like, you can use um, uh, uh, Muso or Wind God, God Fist with Gafka, get a bunch of hits in, drag them into position, and then try to get off, like, maybe two back-to-back Will-O-The-Wisps. Transturn would help with that, too. Uh, is is very effective. I think I I, I think in two rounds I, I had killed all of Viola's uh, minions. So it's um, just one ultra specific strategy for that one fight. But uh, agreed, crystals and floating blocks annoying to deal with, especially with an underleveled Erica or anyone else you yeah, have. Geez, my, I, I was wor- I'm worried I was uh, underleveled in general. I got to the final boss with stock at level 49, and everyone else in the in the 40 to 50 range. I'm sorry, in in the in the 40 to 45 range, and I yeah. I, I really struggled. Um, it uh, I I had to do some sort of very slow two people healing every turn methods to beat the to beat the final boss apocrypha. Yeah, it's a rough fight. Um, like the Black Chronicle thing's not too bad, especially if you use no. Gafka, because you'll have to like push. That one's that one's sort of fun because you get to push pull, yeah. which is the w- most fun way to play the game. 
Yeah, I love that. I do like that it changes up the like mechanics because you have like some enemies that take up two squares horizontally, two vertically, or four, like the big bears. Mm. But then you get like the spider, which takes up all of it, and Apocrypha, which takes up all of it. I don't mind it changing up, but yeah, the best thing about this game is like stacking up eight enemies onto one square and then just launching one massive thunderbolt or one big punch on all of them and killing them in one go. Like that's the best thing about it. And then you know you an entire boss shaped around that is great. Like you can do that black chronicle fight in like two turns if you're really good with gafka yeah i'm I'm sure i'm sure very enterprising people out there can take out the book in one turn and then the extra shadow in a second turn or something it 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 was not that easy for me but i uh but (laughs) it's way more fun mechanically than uh than a full screen enemy and and even when enemies take up um four squares or two squares i think there's still some fun to that it's like oh i gotta i gotta mess around and 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 and, uh like you know tetris work tetris this out a little bit to have the uh to have my combos fit together but uh again i didn't like it when they took away that aspect of gameplay um and we we mentioned way earlier in this episode that like like ot becomes not useless but um somewhat uh hamstrung if the if uh if you happen to bring her into a full screen battle I actually kind of liked the full screen bosses. Like, I think if they had put too many, I would have hated it. But I did like that I occasionally had to change up my odd strategy. Like, I like in a mm. boss fight when I can't, you know, autopilot. So I kind of appreciate that. Autopilot? You know, than... I see what you did there. <laughs> oh, ah. Um, other than, you know, the, the, the Thou machine and bomb fight, which I found so infuriating. Um, the one that was actually the most confusing for me was the Black Chronicle because I like I basically tricked myself. I you know, I, I put them on top of each other and then I moved them onto a trap, but the book is immune to traps or something like that. So I thought it was just immune to damage for the longest time and I was like, What am I supposed to do? How am oh, I supposed no. to do any damage to this thing? But yeah, I don't I don't know why. Like I think that's the only enemy in the game that floats like that. I think um, with the Chronicles, you had to get it in a combo to start doing damage to it or something. I, I, was something, I remember having that same issue, getting hung up on why am I not doing damage to this. Maybe, but like a trap starts off a combo, doesn't it? Even if it doesn't hit anything, yeah, I can't remember, just, right? Yeah, I definitely hit it with the trap, but like it didn't take any... Like it killed all of its shadow friends, but it didn't do any damage to the book, which was interesting. No, but, no, you, you know, I figured it out eventually. Yeah, like the, the 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 shadow has to be in the book to deal damage with the book, and uh, there's some soldier enemies in the second half of the game that will make that have that cast a magic immunity spell that is uh, really annoying to deal with. Um, That's what made the viola fight so hard as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She could she could summon soldier minions, and the soldier minions could make her immune to spell damage for five turns or something. Uh, which is, you know, uh, which is when I have to, you know, Ot has to turn into a healer, and then uh, Stock and whomever else have to. Start using their uh, start using attacks instead of the you know again what I think is of as the most fun way to play the game. But uh, I, I don't mind them forcing you into to change your strategy. It's just I felt there was one thing that was just the most fun, and I didn't like it when they took away the best toy. It's like like <laughs> I, I understand why they did it. Doesn't mean I liked that they did it. <laughs> it's not too much though, so it's not too bad. It's like what three, four bosses maybe at the most. So. It's definitely yeah, the two from... spider fights and the final boss, at the very least. Definitely, yeah. definitely less, definitely less than ten. But it, but still, I, I every time it happened, I was annoyed. Yeah, I getcha. Don't worry. Apocrypha is hard enough, so 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it reminded me of the uh, of the sort of um, the the final stack of monsters at the end of Final Fantasy VI. But like you're sort of going up this tower, and I expected there to be something at the top of the tower, uh, some twisted demon version of heist to deal with. But no, no, it was just a it was just a weird um, pandemonium tower. Man, there, there's a lot of status effects to deal with in that fight. I I was dealing with curse or fear for most of for most of the battle but i think i think he can inflict literally every status effect on you yeah the first time i tried to do apocrypha i got through the black chronicle fight fairly easily and then i did the first phase of apocrypha okay and then the very first turn apocrypha used that sleep spell on the whole party put the whole party to sleep and then petrified two party members and one hit killed the other party member in the next turn so i was like brilliant and i was the first time i tried to do the fight i think stock was level 52 marco Marco and gafka were both like 47 and i was like where's the quick place to level up and it's um there's a place in chapter six outside of the sand fortress which is like a group of bees oh. and they give you like 2000 experience so yeah oh wow it's, i it's a, never found that um yeah you have to go back it's when you it's at the beginning of chapter six i think think standard history um where you're in grenorg and you're about to go into the castle to talk to erica if you go and talk to erica and then see all the cutscenes afterwards you can actually leave the castle and grenorg and go back to the sand fortress and fight the bees so yeah don't kill bees in real life but kill them in video games i suppose (laughs) yeah Um, uh so for apocrypha i just had stock marco and rainy and i was just if i had all my party members available and fairly healthy i would just use Marco to just throw speed down on it and just use all the G elemental attacks that just brute forced it. But I managed to have some amount of luck with like, cause the top layer, like you mentioned, Alana casts um, like incapacitating status effects on the whole party. Uh, and I managed to avoid my whole party, like falling asleep or getting petrified Jeez. most of the time. So I was able to kind of, you you know, then kind of scramble to wake up or, de- or unpetrify someone and kind of get back in the rhythm of it. But, yeah, I mean, I managed to kind of, they were like between levels 54 and 58 or something. And I managed to just kind of do it that way. Just the G elemental attacks and speed down and that's it. Um, yeah. And, of course, like some, some turn shifting and whatever other kind of shenanigans too. The I, I died against the final boss I think two or three times before finally triumphing and my levels were a little on the low side again stock was forty nine, um, but the thing that ended up saving me at the end was uh, keeping up lunatic and and regenerate. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, I think I think it's called lunatic. But Ot learns a spell that makes make makes status effects less likely to be successful on your whole party. Yeah, and casting that every four or five turns seemed to make me, you know, not cursed or feared or petrified quite as often. And I, and it was, it was a slow, uh, um, path to victory, but I, I did ev- eventually knock it out. Um, yeah, but again, th- this game does so many interesting things with combat and it has a couple challenging encounters, even though there, I don't think there's a difficulty setting that you can adjust, uh, that I, I, I think it's from a narrative perspective and uh sort of a and sort of like a grind and a pace and the uh and a challenge level it's it's just a a good satisfying rpg i think that um when we draft our final thoughts segment for next weekend um i think it's going to be four 
positive reviews. A am I am am I wrong here? No, you're right. Absolutely not. You're yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a one problem I have with the ending of the game, which it sounds like maybe Alana has a similar problem with the end of the game. Is this the um, true ending? It's it's one of the characters' true endings. Um, oh, okay. I'm interested to hear this. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, in that case, I'll just get into it. Uh, you know, yeah, we, this we, is we, not we, to say that the game is bad. No, no, we, we, like, and, and, and we can spoil things. Go for it, dude. Yeah, like, I loved everything about this game except this. I thought it was so unnecessary that Rainy professes her love for Stock. Yes, I forgot yes. about this. Yes, oh, yeah, she, she, does, she does that in her side quest, too, very yes. awkwardly. And, oh, it's so one of, and it's one of the ten mandatory ones as well, so yeah, it's like it's... canon. And in the 3DS version of the game, actually, in both, yeah, in the 3DS version of the game, and it might even be the bad ending in this game. Actually, um, they're fully confirmed to live together and like live together, and it's like it, it it's so out of the blue, like yeah, it's completely unearned on my point. It feels like you know we were alluding to this on the last podcast where they did a good job of subverting, you know, some of the, you know, JRPG archetypes you might expect. And they were doing a really good job with that for Rainy, in my opinion, you know, like her backstory, I thought was really meaningful and they did well with that. And then they ruin it by making her the love interest. I was so annoyed when that happened. And, and, yeah. her, and her tone is a little, um, a, 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 a little rough. Like, like she's not a, she, she's not demure, or a soft character. She's uh, she she's been through some crap, and is a sort of a likable tough girl for most of the game. So her love confession to Stock in that uh, late game side quest, it's in chapter five or six, really comes out of the blue. And I'm with you, Caleb. I don't think it felt earned. It's not at all. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like they were like somebody's got to be in love with someone. Um, but yeah, we I, I got it. Right. It's the Ceteros girl and the nameless Grenorg soldier. Yes, and that Russian is the romance Son of the decade. That's the one I needed. No. And Rosh and Sonia as well, who get together oh, on yeah. the true ending. They are, yeah. they, she's having, like she's having a baby with him, and so is the Ceteros girl. She's having a baby with the 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 human former god who's now going around the world mm -hmm. of the truth. Like Rosh and Sonia are together regardless of which ending you get. Yes, that's true. Yeah, they're yeah. just together, which is cool. But but, but but their side quest is very cute, and you should still do it. Definitely. Mm, yeah. yeah. Right. No, my problem with the true ending, and I don't even know if it is a problem. I don't know whether I'm just reading into it too much. It's like, um, the thing with the true ending is, so, as I think Pete said earlier, like, if you don't get the true ending, Stock decides to stay in the Historia because he sacrificed his life to extend the or extend the life of the continent basically but the true ending stock is seen throughout these cutscenes. like he pops up as if he's going back through time just to check on everybody before like he dies or becomes one of the continent and then he reappears in the historia with uh teo and lipti and heiss is there as well and heiss decides to take his place mm -hmm. and i'm like again like everyone's morally great in this game but, like, suddenly Heiss cares for his nephew. Like, Teal and Lipti are like, well, because Heiss is like, no, I'm going to do it. Uh, you know. And um, Teal and Lipti are like, no, Heiss, don't. Your soul is not prepared for sacrifice. Like, don't do this. This is a mistake. And Heiss is like, to hell with your pre preparing or whatever. Like, I'm going to do it anyway. 
and and then he's it's like this light appears and heist is like oh stock this is the future you want huh yeah good. and then they're like oh that prepared his soul so he's good to go <laughs> yeah <laughs> he can go ahead and do it yeah, it's a deathbed like, confession. It's like all the stuff that you know we we tend to not want to see in this kind of thing. It's just it's basically a deathbed confession. It redeems him. <laughs> un- it's unearned, kind of, but yeah, yeah a little that, bit. That little bit. It felt like they were just like lifting the rug, and they're like, "Okay, let's just sweep everything we need to under, and then get on with it." You know, we're just going to hide all this, and then we're going to move on real quick. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's how that, we felt that's about not, it. That's not. I mean, I I didn't see all of this because again, I either failed to get the true ending or accidentally skipped it when I uh, when I finished the game again l- less than ninety minutes ago. Um, but yeah, that that's like not as heinous as what the 3ds version does but still i'm not sure how i feel about that yeah it's a little weird like it definitely like i I could assume obviously that he was going to do it but like after years and years of opposing this sacrificial ritual all of a sudden he's okay with it just because stock is you know he's in stock's vision for the future but also like stock thanks him as well and i get this kind of because like stock is essentially like you know um, Heist set everything up. So the reason Heist met Roche was because of being installed into the army and mm-hmm. meeting him. And he was set up deliberately with Marco and Rainey to yeah, yeah, go he, through this tragic. Yeah, like it's he, all he, deliberate. He um, Heist even says that he wanted him to have companions that were that that were strong enough to help him, but not important enough that they would affect him from his path. Which is you oh, know a, a, so shady when a, he said a, that. A, a perfect yeah. description of Marco. Just 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 oh. useful but not memorable or good you know what i'm engaging okay <laughs> it is my job to defend marco apparently and uh, but, but like on the same this... note of the endings like i did kind of want to talk about marco because it it gets at the reason like i actually love this character and you know i i appreciate him in battle but i like him as a character um i feel like you know that message of altruism that i was talking about earlier how it's like hard but it's important i feel like he embodies that message most because you know him and rainy went through the same thing Mm. and you know her response was obviously like reasonable and she's you know dealing with the trauma you know he has i think the reason i started to love marco is because he has that same trauma but as a person he's too stupid to process it we agree (laughs) he's chosen to you know he's always with marco he's like her person like in a platonic way like i in my you know, opinion, Marco has chosen to, you know, be there for her and to you know, sort of like, I don't know, to, to, to sort of not deal with it as outwardly as her because he wants to be sort of that rock for Rainy. And they kind of get it in the, in his true ending, because I think he more or less becomes like the commander of his own platoon, essentially. And he speaks to like, he talks about how, you know, he has his own issues, but he's putting them aside to lead his platoon uh, and, you know, make a better world for Alicell. And, you know, it, he kind of came full circle for me. And that's, you know, just to more in depth explain why I liked him so much throughout the game. Okay. What I got out of that was you said he was her rock and that he was a circle. So I agree he's about as useful as a circular rock. <laughs> I do appreciate that he's round. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Dumb he, as a he's a, he's a small round boy and he's very cute. And I still want his helmet. So, yeah. 
it's great. Okay, I'm really glad that everyone agrees with me on the heist thing, though, that it was a bit odd. But, like, maybe before we start wrapping it up, for the people who did do the true ending, what answer did you pick? There's a question oh at the end. <laughs> There's a I, question I did it at the like end. Three weeks ago, I, I'm trying to remember what my answer was. The bears. <laughs> so, there's a, for the listeners, there's a question at the end. Uh, you go through all that. Heist makes his sacrifice, and Tyr and Lipty say, "Thank you, Stock, for everything you've done." You can record your name in the White Chronicle to like make your mark on history. What name do you want to put down? And you get a choice between either Ernst or Stock. Oh. So yeah, the, it doesn't change anything. It, like the I pick Stock because like essentially like at this point like stock is stock like i've been playing the game as stock and ernst has died and the whole game has essentially been like stock finding out who he is really but like realizing that you know as much as he was ernst in a previous not previous life but i'm just used that as a term like years ago like stock has been living out his life as stock that was the identity he was given that's what he's embraced and he's become this entirely different character to whoever ernst is so like this self-actualized version of stock is the person who saved the world and yeah i that was the name i scribbled down in the uh white chronicle and i really the game ends on like a, a note that was like the last line of dialogue is and i don't know what it is for the other name i'm sure it's the same thing it's like my name is stock I'm just someone who wants to go back and help my friends or something like that. And then the screen fades to white and that's it. So you don't know whether he goes to see Rainy. You don't know who he goes to see. You don't know where he goes to live. And he's just going to go and live his life happy and as stock, which is, yeah, I think most people would pick stock personally. Like, uh, I, I right answer. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not putting my foot in my mouth, but I think that's an incomplete ending too, at least the one I got. And I definitely picked stock. And it does explain, just like you said, like, I mean, stock is who I am, you know, like I've been stock and I am stock still. So the, yeah. I thought that, the player, that was satisfying. The player doesn't know stock before stock or does not know yeah. Ernst before stock. So um, I, I don't, I don't think I made that choice. It's possible I either, I either closed the do it, my DS too soon or skipped over it accidentally or didn't get the true ending. I'm not, some combination of those, but, uh, uh, to, to me, he is Stock and not Ernst, and he even uses the name Ernst casually as an alias at one yes. point. Because and, and and you and you can tell it's because oh, that's a name that I heard a little while ago. I'll, I'll just use that, and it, and it's a uh, and it comes as a shock to uh, Erica when she hears Garland call Stock Ernst uh, a, l- yeah. a little bit later. But it, I, I mean, I, the player experience is as Stock and not Ernst, so it would feel weird for me to say. Uh, like um, sincerely, Ernst at the at, at the end of the game. Yeah, you ju- you jog my memory, Alana, because I picked the same thing for the exact same reason. I like I guess I could see someone picking Ernst because like he does kind of you know suffer the same fate that Ernst was supposed to suffer. Like he has the same ending in a way, but his path there, like he forged it himself. So yeah, like, you know, everyone said this, but he, he's his own person now. And yeah. Yeah. And like, I think the only reason I could think about picking Ernst is maybe that, you know, Ernst is technically dead and died to like perpetuate the ritual at some point. Like, like he'd be be signing his tombstone by writing Ernst there. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of. And yeah, like Ernst is dead in the white Chronicle. I'm now going to live the rest of my life as stock, but I don't like, he wants Ernst to be remembered for the sacrifice and not stock for saving the world and 
like letting Heist sacrifice himself. I don't know. That's not it's not making sense out. It, it's not coming out of my mouth properly, but I think I know what I mean. If yeah, all it makes sense to me. How you're saying it? Cool. Okay. All of this discussion about souls and sacrifices makes me think of that uh, that early days of the PlayStation Vita RPG, where uh, around the same time on retro on a, on random encounter. Um, like Rob and Derek would use like like Diablo voices to to say the title like like Soul Sacrifice. Oh my um, God! Yeah, things that that, wow, that, that was amazing. Yeah, the, like a, a you know a callback to an in joke on a different podcast from eight years ago. Uh, but if if we're in that territory, I think we're about ready to end the episode. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for this. Uh, this th- almost three-hour journey through Radiant Historia. It was a lot of fun reliving this game on a replay that I wish I had. Uh, I had. Um, I wish I had um, spent my time better on it because I ended up uh, playing the last eight or nine hours all at once, and it was. And that that experience is not recommended. But the game itself is very recommended. This is a very very good RPG for the late 2000s, early 2010s. And uh, made me nostalgic for weird things about my DS, like 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 the like the matte finish on the on the DSi, or yeah. having a handheld console that can hold a charge for a, for a decent amount of time. Um, that was. I like the little bevel on the bottom screen of the DS Lite. Love that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was nost- very nostalgic for me to play a game from 10 years ago on a system that I love playing games on. Uh, to say nothing of that, uh, Radiant Historia is just a really good standalone game on its own. But uh, listeners, speaking of podcast episodes that stand, along, uh, stand on their own, in two weeks we're going to have an episode all about Crimson Shroud, the uh, Matsuno 3DS eyewear game that is really weird and interesting. Um, I, I have not started playing that yet because I've been very busy with Radiant Historia, but we're having an episode on that either next week or in two weeks. I haven't uh, planned all of it out yet. Uh, but uh, the other episode in that time frame is going to be our second Final Fantasy XIV episode. We did one episode mostly focused on A Realm Reborn earlier this month, and we're going to have an episode mostly focused on Heaven's Word coming in March. So those will be the next two episodes. Following those, we have two episodes coming on Muramasa, the Demon Blade, the Wii and Vita action RPG from VanillaWare that I have not touched, but it's loaded up on my Vita and ready to go, and I'm looking forward to getting to that very, very soon. Hopefully it does not cut into my Bravely Default 2 time too much, because oh, I'm going to play some Bravely Default 2 when that thing lands believe you me. Um, but listeners, if you want to message us about Muramasa or Radiant Historia or Soul Sacrifice or anything, oh, excuse me, Soul Sacrifice, then please email us at retro at RPGfan.com. You can also comment on RPGfan.com's message boards, visit our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter page, our Discord server, our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, something streaming on Twitch every day and stuff appearing on all of those uh, all of those venues every week at least. Please engage with us however you choose. We are always either RPG Fan or RPG Fan Com on all of those services. RPG Fan also has three other fine podcasts Random Encounter about randomness, Rhythm Encounter about rhythmness, and Phoenix Edge, our uh, partner podcast, which is weekly and focuses mostly on current events. You can review Retro Encounter or those other three podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, or uh, Spotify, or any other podcast listening venue. We love feedback. Give us all the feedback. And if you want to give us feedback individually, let's tell you how to do that, um, starting with you, Caleb. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Fuffa30, and I don't, I don't know, maybe I'll you know, do my first tweet by then? Yeah, you, yeah, you're a Twitter baby. You're, you have fewer tweets than days on Twitter, at least. 
It, zero is fewer than anything, so yes. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I can still count numbers. Excellent. I haven't forgotten integers, even though I took algebra decades ago. Uh, Alana, how can listeners find you? Uh, I definitely do not have less tweets than I have days on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I am on there at, at Alana Haig, so come find me. I'm not on Mirror Master, so I'll be playing some of my own stuff. It'll be fun. Um, uh, otherwise, I'm on the RPG Fan Discord as well as Alana, or if you want to email me, you can do that uh, Alana H at RPGFan.com. And Pete, how can listeners find you? I'm on Twitter at PeteBarbero1, and I'm on Twitch at RGHalfpenny. Uh, I'll probably, by the time you hear this, still be doing Genshin Impact Lantern Rite stuff. That event's really pretty, but anyway, that's where you can find me. All right, and uh, listeners, if you want to find me on social media, the best way to do so is probably Twitter. I'm at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoca for Dogs other times. I'm also at Monsoon Mike on the RPG Fan Discord. Yeah, I'm, I'm really only playing games either for review or for podcast the next several weeks, so it's going to be uh, definitely Muramasa and Crimson Shroud, probably also Bravely Default 2. And definitely also the game that we have uh, coming in April, which I won't announce yet. But, oh, yeah. But it's a, uh, it's a PS2 game that has a lot of fans. So, so please look forward to the game coming in April. But uh, thank you for joining us on this Radiant Historia journey. Thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>